Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. All right. And we are rolling. Welcome. Oh, do I need to, do you have volume? Can you hear me? I can hear you great. How's my sound quality? Super, super. All right, wonderful. Like that, I put up my little uh, Zeppelin wall cloth. I figured that would make for a change since you have such a beautiful background. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, New Orleans living, how is that? Um, I have been in the French Quarter. This is my first year living in the French Quarter. So it's an odd year to be here. There will be no Mardi Gras. The tourism is not quite as rambunctious as usual. So it's interesting to get to see the environment I grew up around empty or relatively so. Wow. Um, but it's a lot of energy to contend with for sure. That. So you grew up there in New Orleans. I grew up in the area and I had family uh, in New Orleans. So I was here like every weekend to see my great grandmother and that sort of thing. All right. But you grew up in the state. I almost said province. <laughs> I grew up, uh, I grew up about an hour away. Yeah. Is that better? Are we more magical now? There we oh, uh, yeah. We're already quite magical. Yeah, take off my glasses for contrast. Now only one of us seems like a geek. <laughs> I'm a proud geek as a, as a devotee of Hermes. Is that your main god? Um, yes. When, well, right around puberty, I started having recurring dreams of Hermes. And that started my dive into the more ceremonial side of esotericism. It kind of coincided what, and what was it like before uh, you say more ceremonial what was it when it was less ceremonial I grew up with Cajun Catholicism and uh, was raised with the concept of the intervention of the saints very strongly um, and in Cajun families often there's one member of the family who is turned to 
to pray regarding particular issues for the intervention of the saints. And I was that person. Oh, wow. Um, but as I, as I realized that I was gay and in, while I was in Catholic school and all that sort of thing, Sounds like fun. of course, I created a crisis of paradigm. And so Catholicism and magic crossfaded. I started more in natural magic territory, though, than ceremonial work. Like uh, sort of more Wicca, Druidry, crystal candles? Yes, so, yes. I mean, that's what I was enthralled by. Was I, For me, it was DJ Conway's Celtic magic book I found when I was, and a Druidry book that I found when I was 13, I think. Yeah. And I was just like, screw this Maharishi stuff. I'm, I'm getting, I'm going to be a Celtic Druid witch. <laughs> And I, I'm very happy that I started off that way because it allowed me to get context and appreciation for the practices of people I'm very close with, particularly regionally, where natural magic, whether it's within the context of an African traditional religion or traditional witchcraft in a coven structure, um, to be able to understand the language a bit better. Interesting. Wow. So there's clearly going to be a lot of things we can talk about with a varietous background like you have. Um, what's, uh, what's been your favorite thing in your magical journey, which has obviously spanned many years as, has, as it has for most of us? What's, what's, is there a highlight moment? I've been wondering about this sometimes when I think about my past. Is there a highlight moment or a period where you're like, that's where it was really the most exciting and fun and where I got the most out of it that led me to where I'm at today? I, I think early in my development, so I was reading cards like pre-puberty and um, doing a lot of research, but wasn't engaged in a lot of praxis because I was in a Catholic house and that sort of thing. But um, when I moved in with my father, he was gone 16 hours out of the day. And so I basically had an entire house and private backyard to explore and you know come up with rhyming spells and burn things in the backyard and that kind of like wonder of radical freedom and uh, I, I try and retain that spirit even though maybe conceptualization has changed the contact with the ground that I experienced at that time persists. Nice yeah I was always sneaking out to the garden where I lived in uh, Lynn Valley which is where Frater Achad is buried um, right next to the first college I went to, Trippy. I've told that story before, maybe I'll tell you again, but to sneak out and I would go pour milk and cream on the flowers for the fairies, you know, when I was like young, young, definitely. Um, I still do a lot of that, but in um, a more regional context, like leaving water for saints and, and that sort of thing. I still do active work with the saints. Uh, my ancestors don't want offerings. That's not their vantage point. They're not really interested. They're my offering is doing work for family, like relaying messages and that sort of thing. The ancestor thing is big these days, isn't it? It is. I, I think, but I think long term, um, that's a very important piece because I think we need to reach a point where the insights of early animism and ancestor veneration can be uh, recontextualized in the modern era along with the ceremonial corpus and all of that. Like, I think, I don't wanna say we want to improve the ancient, but come in contact with the ancient 
such that it persists in a meaningful sense in, in the future, which is why ceramic is so interesting to me because I want to leave relics for the future archeologists. It's like, like a proclamation that. of like, this is what we were up to. I like that. So once we're replaced by the machines that we built and they develop to the point that they've forgotten that they were made by humans and they create humans, those humans can find the relics that you made mm -hmm. and realize what has happened before will happen again. Not to quote Battlestar or anything like that. Oh, please, please quote Battlestar. Dude, it, the church that, you know, the church from that scene is right down the street there. One of my, some of my buddies are, are the ministers of that United Church and, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, Vancouver is Caprica, right? That's what it is. If you walk around, you're like, wait, what? And it's like, yeah, it's Caprica. I ran into Boomer once outside of a venue where she had just finished a play and I got this Battlestar Galactica badge from her that she gave me as a reward for my feeble attempts to uh, be charming. <laughs> There's no Caprica with, uh, without Torasani, but <laughs> we can... <laughs> but, but, in any case, I think that that question of, of what future intelligence, whether it's machine or other, otherwise, will interpret of our leavings is very interesting to me. And I'm making an active effort to insert myself into virtual reality and plant a hermetic flag in that space. Uh, I'm very interested in that idea as well. I think I'm trying to think progressively about how the torch is carried. Cyber magic. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about how the torch will be carried too. It's when, uh, when uh, Frater BT, Edward Reeb, sort of uh, evoked me out of, out of my closet. Um, it's a poor choice of words, especially when talking to a, a gay fellow. <laughs> it was a different kind of closet. It was the kind that Jesus told you to go pray in because Jesus said, don't pray in public. That yeah. kind of closet. I had abandoned the popular mainstream occult world after uh, my experiences in the Golden Dawn to, to just live my life. You know, mm -hmm. I felt I had given enough of myself and now it's time for me to see what I could do in the world. Um, but uh, where was I going? Sorry, I've been... Uh, and scattered of late. Oh, that's um, fine. I, but I, I could say that I had a similar period in 2005 um, during Katrina, where um, practical magic especially was put on a shelf after being in Katrina, in the house, and like nine people dying in my subdivision and finding other people's teeth in my house. And looking up at the night sky for the first time with no light pollution, with the universe bearing down on me saying like, this is who I am and this is who you are. Like, and so my shift to exclusive theurgy continued for several years while I was working, building material security for myself. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so that was what I was saying. My point that I lost was about, yeah, the the future generations and the people that come and, and you're thinking a very physical approach. Um, whereas I think uh, you could say it could, it could be argued that I'm taking a more cyber approach mm -hmm. to like, you know, so we could say, we could imagine the future that 
that what if technology is all gone? That's one way we imagine the future. I mean, Rogan and Hancock talk about this, like, you know, we could just get wiped out too and our technologies will be lost like the ancient hypothetical technologies were lost maybe we don't we don't really know we don't really know like yeah amazing drilling technology in Quebec Tepe, but we don't know no just no. like we don't we only sort of know no about aliens right but could still mm. be a psyops we don't know I mean some people say they do but like we'll know when we see them right like if there's one on like if there's one there on tv spanking Donald Trump and saying hey we're here we'll be like oh shit it's here but until then and so <laughs> my my th approach has been to think well what if the other thing happens which is things just get more digital more technological like do you think the internet or technology or the these massive databases of information are going to vanish anytime soon i i don't particularly think so uh, but if you look at the archaeology of magic we are at a we deficit because only part of the magical corpus exists because only certain materials can per, can endure through time. So our knowledge of ancient magic is is heavily wrapped up in written material because the herbs and the stones, like the materia magica, just simply vanished over time. And I think our knowledge of their praxis would be different if we were able to triangulate different sources of information. So, yeah, and we have, I was just covering that in my bit on the Assyrian trees of life, and I've got a part two of that coming up. But one of the problems is their magic and spiritual tradition was an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. they, they probably didn't think it was going to vanish as soon as it did. And to be fair, it didn't vanish that quickly. I mean, it led into Phoenicia and Egypt and all, you know, Greco-Roman stuff that came out of it, but it's gone. We don't have it now. We have no idea. And we're looking at these one or two images we have in glyphs of their tree and counting the petals and seeing how the gods and the numbers fit and uh, and extrapolating. It took us ages to extrapolate. It was 94 when this bit of research I've recently shared came out that that, that was the tree from which the Kabbalists created theirs which made the most interesting point possible when I first read it in the 90s doing my Celtic mysteries and trying to put the Irish gods more accurately on the tree because all we had was Cicero's middle pillar, which did a very quick job of throwing all the gods from all the pantheons and the trees. And they just sort of, you know, they, they had a, they, it wasn't a focused singular study. And the bigger, the biggest criticism I had since then was you're taking a monotheistic Orthodox Jewish system and appropriating it for pagan ends. But I was trying to explain to people, no, this, this research, my research has shown, and I didn't have the, the study from the journal then, because in the 90s, it was very hard to get those things and very expensive. I mean, it's just some of the basic Celtic mythological books I had to buy throughout the 90s to do that book cost hundreds of dollars to order from Ireland. But now you can get them for 20 bucks on Amazon, like the Tame oh, really? of Cooley. Right. So it was crazy, especially I was doing that as a teen. So it was, it was very hard to get to read every single Celtic publication of Irish gods which I did. I went through every single existing thing. The only thing I couldn't look at was the Dindicentius and the other manuscripts that were in the advanced uh, Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. To order those manuscripts even would have cost thousands of dollars for just a photocopy. And then you actually need old Irish or middle high Irish to read them. So that would have been a doctoral paper, not, a, grant work, not a high yeah. school graduation paper. <laughs> Which I did well enough, fortunately, to challenge the BA. So it wasn't it wasn't bad. It is online. It is a good good way of 
understanding the structuralist arguments that Yeats and those sort of thinkers use to apply gods to the Sephiroth. Now, ultimately, I think it's sort of silly to put gods on Sephiroth, believe it or not. I do. It's a little silly, but it's not much sillier than the idea of the Sephiroth as part of representing forces of God's body in the first place. I mean, uh, we want to put the tree of life. Uh, we want to pin it down to a tray like a dissected frog and keep it still and then cram as much as we want into it. I'm, of course, as someone who does a lot of planetary work, um, correspondences are useful, but I'm suspicious of the correspondence obsession. Yes. Pardon me. Oh, that's fine. I think that um, it's a hammer in the hand and things start looking like nails that are not nails. Yeah, you know, thinking of in terms of the formula of the Tetragrammaton, which I was lecturing on yesterday, you know, the Vav, which, con which connects the hey superior and the hey final, it's mm -hmm. important in so far as it's there to manifest the above hey to the lower hey in that flowing of the, the tetragrammaton, but the, the goal is just to manifest that, that higher window, because hey means window, to the lower window so that you can see through it and see that yod, that divine inspiration, that true will, pia mm -hmm. that we're all reaching for, as David Heimsmith always says, you know, the bathe, the bath of divine light and like a, a wash, right? Even the, mm -hmm. the Thelemite who came out, uh, my buddy, and, and was like, took a, took a crap on Thelema. And I talked to David Himes and he's like, I did not. I said, I laud their sincerity. I'm like, I know, I know, but he's Thelema. Thelema, he has to be dramatic. And plus he's in Frisco. Oh, I said Frisco. <laughs> and uh, and then they started talking. So that's great. That's what this is all about, dialogue and, and sharing ideas. Once you talk to people, things are different, right? That's what one of the things I love with this podcasting project is to like get us away from those just that Twitterverse, which I know so many people exist on is just so toxic. When Absolutely. I, I, I practiced uh, psychotherapy for um, about a decade before transitioning to uh, dedicating all of my time to my ceramic vocation. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, I really want to get into the ceramic stuff, but first, what can you tell me more about your psychotherapeutic background and, and training? Absolutely. So I, um, I did linguistics and Russian in undergraduate. Uh, I was in an, in an intelligence pipeline program and realized that that was not going to be a fruitful endeavor. And so I shifted into law school. Uh, I was going to do space law, which governs the usage of satellites and all of that sort of thing because I spoke wow. Russian. Um, but I found the environment absolutely spiritually inhospitable. And I liked the advocacy part. And I had very formative experiences with therapists growing up. And so it, the, I left law school surprising everyone that knew me with no advance notice and uh, had I'm not, I, I don't want to be a YouTube Advaitin and say I had an, like, you know, an enlightenment experience, but I had a persistent awakening that endured for about eight, eight months, which was incredibly difficult for me to integrate on a day-to-day -day basis, um, especially in a relationship, a committed relationship where I was cohabitating. Um, and so that set me on my own integration adventure 
and therapy seemed like a natural complement to what was developing with me personally. I worked in acute inpatient psychiatric care um, in a hospital of 72 beds. And I focused on the most severe cases that required court commitment. Like I would have to go to court and get people court committed. People screaming in my face, trying to defecate on me. Like, you know, I, I saw the, as bad as things can get in that context, I saw it. Um, and it was in a Catholic hospital. So it was reverberating childhood things as well. Um, and then I, when my husband matched at Johns Hopkins, I, uh, for his residency in pathology, I began work outpatient there, uh, where my focus was, I did some publication, but my, my focus was on treating those who were substance addicted, usually heroin, uh, with uh, severe mental illness, which we would can consider like schizophrenia, type one bipolar disorder, uh, these sorts of high acuity diagnoses, um, people who are also transgender. So like the confluence of those three, three things, wow. of addiction, severe mental illness, and, and preparing people for the process of legal and social transition. That is amazing. Yeah, um, but I felt like at a, at a certain point, I was no longer growing developmentally um, that I was li living a groundhog day of, of other people's pain and it was time to make a shift. So when we returned to New Orleans, I took my, my home craft and made it my full-time thing. Interesting. Well, before we, I, I will touch, I'd love to jump back into some of the things, especially psychoanalytic stuff, because I, I, second year grad school, I focused on psychoanalytic philosophy, especially Jacques Lacan. I don't know if you're familiar with his mm -hmm. breakdown of the psyche into uh, uh, imaginary, symbolic, and real, which is the first sort of psychoanalytic structure for the self that also can give insight into maybe a metaphysics, perhaps. Yes. And I don't mean metaphysics in the new age or occult sense, but in the philosophical sense, but so that people understand why we're doing this. So you reached out and you were like, I heard your David Heimsmith thing. And you asked him is selling talismans like Simony. And I could <laughs> sense the fight in you. And I was like, thank God, my little, my little jab to the world worked and got a reaction. I, I was trying to, you know, this is, it's, I, I find if I can be a like that and get, guests to come to me, it, 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 it beats chasing people down because I was, there's been times I spent a couple hours a day trying to find people to talk to and fail. So this is better. I like this. I'll just keep saying a few uh, uh, dramatic black and white things uh, <laughs> and uh, get people to react. And then I'll be like, no, no, it's cool. But no, it is an interesting, I was curious what he would say, because Simony is an interesting one, right? It's an mm -hmm. interesting one, especially with the Jesus Simon Magus story in the Bible, um, and you can you can go to the pharmacy angle, but that's not entirely accurate, I don't think. So, what's your take? Yeah, what what you make talismans and you make them out of clay, which is super cool. I have an aunt who's a world famous potter, potist, potter, Ed, pothead. 
Yeah. <laughs> Most <laughs> are, many are. He was a fundamentalist Christian in Missouri when I visited them in 1991 when I was 10. And they were like paddling paddling the kids and all of that stuff. And now she's like reverted to her hippie ways and lives on the island. And it's just like, she's just sort of like, you know, forget about all that crazy Christian stuff. I did. it's like, you traumatized the family for decades. <laughs> now that son who was my age and her ex-husband, who was a Texan preacher, she ran off from Vancouver to go marry and named Bud Hill are living in Colorado. And, and he's on crack. And last time she saw him, he was staying there in the living room with a gun saying, this is me, mom, this is me. And like, you know, that's what had the trauma for the family. And even the dad, the Texan preacher dad and the son both like are like, you abused us woman, but they was just a shit show of fundamentalism and evangelicalism that mm -hmm. traumatized them over time, traumatized the family because they'd tell the gay people in the family, you're going to hell and send pamphlets and stuff. And I just found one of their old books that they would self print and make in the eighties. And it's like, whoa, Nelly whoa nelly like some people get into this stuff and and psychoanalytically and psychologically i'm sure you have a lot to say on that but she's now a famous potter very famous and that's amazing and so i've become fascinated with her process and her growth as a human being um into a <laughs> nicer person shall we say mm -hmm. um and I think pottery's seeing her work it's so beautiful and that's why i have this that's one of when i saw your work i was like oh i i have a lot of appreciation that's just starting to blossom for for clay and pottery. I'm no good at it. I tried in Waldorf school, of course, but no, eh, eh, maybe, but no. I was actually, what I liked more was um, the brass thing where you're chiseling into the brass and then doing prints. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of that in Vienna in high school and I loved that. But so simony, selling talismans as magic, heresy, sin, does it take for us from God? Like what's the whole, what's your whole take yeah so I, i'll start at the paradigm yeah I'll, well okay paradigm i'll i'll start at the like pin down the historical context first before i shift so practical magic i would call it uh, that rather than thaumaturgy just because i've got people listening who have no clue what that is um but uh, practical magic by and large after from animism into what we see in early civilizations was a commercial endeavor. Now, do I think that those some of those temple priests and some of the people who are selling wares currently are engaging in what is tantamount to simony? Yes. Um, but my paradigm, as far as my personal work, is something like this. The I am called to the creation of the object as a sort of cybernetic feedback process to reimmerse in the bath. That the creation of the object is not just a practical magic praxis, but it is an invitation for an encounter with the numinous. Um, as far as the the charging of money for things. Um, I'll be honest, I, I want to be compensated for my time in, in that sense, and the, the cost of material, not just because it's uh, unsustainable otherwise, but because that places a burden on my spouse. And it creates a situation where the work itself becomes corrupted by um, 
a sense of deficiency. And I find trying to keep a cost such that I'm not gonna be buying a boat with the money I'm making, but that it is able to financially sustain the practice which I am called to um, in, in service of others. Uh, I, I am okay with that. Um, I would not be okay with it if I was approaching it from any other angle than operating from the ground to have an encounter that creates that same bathing opportunity in the ground with another person. The pretense of what they want to accomplish um, is secondary, ultimately. Uh, that that we, you were talking with David Hines Smith about gradual versus spontaneous. And I see the interaction with magical objects as part of that gradual process for many people. Uh, that people thinking what they want is a certain thing and then being realized, then realizing through the comic nature of magical efficacy that what they get is something wholly different but incredibly needed uh, is an opportunity for them to broaden their perspective. Interestingly though, most people don't come to me with a specific aim. They come to me wanting something in their life that will help re-enchant their world. I like that. Yeah, so people often take several days to get back with me about what they want. And I think that that's a good opportunity for people to examine the tensions and dissonances in their own life. Um, sometimes I find that their, their aim is actualized by the discovery of their intention. The aim is actualized by the discovery of their, yes, yes. Something you said earlier reminded me of one of the best lessons I learned from my magical mentor, which was the purpose of the, and this, this is, it's one of those things true and not true, but it is true. And it was definitely uh, most important as regards to spiritual healing, which again, as, as a RNC person, I take very seriously. And I also take the, the uh, dictate of the fama very seriously to heal gratis. So it's the one thing, I think it's interesting that the fama fraternitatis, the founding document of the Rosicrucian idea, because it is an idea more than a thing, um, basically doesn't outlaw you doing any other form of theurgy or thaumaturgy or for money or for free or charging to initiate someone, which is reasonable because it's expensive to do initiations as every order knows. But it does say only one thing has to be free. And, and I always found that very, you know, it's interesting when someone says something like, you can do what you want, except this one thing. Or in, in Christianity, like all sins can be forgiven except one sin, blaspheming against oh, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know that, right? Because it's and it makes sense. It's like, you know, go ahead, talk shit, be a sinner as we all are. We're all embedded in this world of sense of the German Zin. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But if you mock the force, what kind of Jedi are you? You know, you're not, don't Fair mock enough. the force. Don't mock the breath of life because, whoa, Nelly, I tell you, mm -hmm. you owe everything to it. Another point that I really, uh, that really struck me as you were talking previously about the question of simony 
uh, is the multicultural element that I think Western esotericism often neglects. So for example, there are per, uh, ritual performances and objects that are uh, engaged with by people in Ifa and Lukumi and various other traditions, and they do so for a charge. But that is also in the service of their contact with the the divine. Or what about it, what about giving ten percent to the church in the basket every that sacrifice of the mass? Very much so. Yeah, uh, so, like, but that's it's not magic though. It's like oh, you're not transforming something physical into another physical substance, and having actual physical transubstantiation through anamnesis and the epiclesis of the spirit. Epiclesis is my big technical word that I use in my opus because um, that's the moment the spirit transforms the, the bread and wine into the body and blood that's called the epiclesis in the spirit and I take that into a whole ethical realm of defining the self but um, yeah that, that's the church is practicing this massive theurgical model of magic and then they're asking for your money so simony 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 yeah and I think the go the golden dawn uh, maybe more than a lot of other magical traditions more generally uh, has this, I don't wanna say aversion, but a stance on practical magic as it being a distraction and, and so forth. Um, I'd be curious, it's hard to make a conclusion about it because I don't have the opportunity to meet the founding members, but uh, if they were not wealthy and white, in a society that supported their development, I think they may think differently. Well, no, you've just hit the nail on the head of the whole reason the schism in 1900 happened. Like Annie Horniman had been giving, uh, by our standard state, almost $2.5 million to the Matherses over 10 years, about, yeah, over 12 years, 10, 11 years. And then she cut them off. And, they, and so he expelled her. And Yates and the rest were like, you can't do that. You can't expel her. We're letting her back in. And we're, we're saying, we'll keep you acknowledged, but none, no more of this stuff, which is actually funnily almost a complete parallel to what happened with Robert Zink in, in, in our order, right? My dearly beloved godfather, believe it or not. Um, it, it's, it's like, oh. And, you know, if, I think Mathers should have taken practical magic more seriously. And I think he was trying to. He didn't have people like Peterson and Dr. Skinner, though, to, to hand him the manuscripts and give him advice. I wish he did. And that's one of the reasons why I think so. The Golden Dawn wanted to get more into practical magic. They tried. They, they did their best. And that's why I think we shouldn't worship them too much. And, and someone was saying on a forum the other day, uh, if, if only we had orders like that today. I'm like, what are you talking about? We have exactly what they had back then. We even have orders today, like Sam Scarborough's, who does its best to recreate how they did it with no like rituals in the outer order, just the meditations and the LVRP. So you want to go super trad, that's there. And then you get this, then you get this much grade material when you get the second order. And if you want to go that way, go that way. And if you think it's the only dogmatic, true traditional way to do it, fine, Sam, much blessings. Cause for some people that is the right way, but we have so many golden dawn orders and they're way better than they were back then. Have you seen the tools? And it was, it, there was a, an element of, of, well, it was so new to them. It was, it was, it was exciting and new. So they didn't have anything to compare it to. 
but we've we've stood on the shoulders of giants now and we have so many great magical orders like anyone who has that ancestor worship and wishes they could be back then is they haven't used a chamber pot oh exactly and all the contemporary research that we now can avail ourselves to archaeology yeah that was not present before we're still debating like the mountain or temple of anubis in egypt right like we're still we just found the first painted colored egyptian art like with actual paint still on like that what better time to be alive and do be a magician this is the revolution baby there there are parallels to alexandria and cyprus that i see in the present era like a high degree of international and um interparadigmatic syncretism uh, with an increase in availability of information I, I am always skeptical of when people, you were talking about like um, Gobekli Tepe and things like that, about people trying to value the ancients by importing um, modern material values of technology. Yeah. I think they were grimy. They were messed up people. They, they fought. If you read their curse tablets, they spared no expense. They weren't just cursing you. They were cursing your children and the ground you walked on. You know, so I realized that um, that was no golden age either. Just as, yeah, this, know. you know, there it is both deplorable and wonderful. And that is the mystery. I mean, let's let, if anyone doesn't really get this point, whether you like him or not, Woody Allen won a Best Picture Academy Award portraying this exact point we're talking about and portraying it in a brilliantly nuanced way with amazing acting. I mean, the Hemingway portrayal is, oh, or not to mention a, Brody's, uh, 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 who's, who's, who's the surrealist he portrayed? Um, it fails me. Oh, Salvador Dali, right? Oh, Dali. of course. Dali. Oh. And Dali, the- was, Dali was perverse. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, as far as practical magic is concerned, I, I, my, my issue with that, view of practical magic as a distraction is that it reifies the same concept of separateness that hermeticism seeks to deconstruct. That the the practical and the theurgic are along a dialectic. They enfold one another. And that um, for some, not for all, uh, a co-evolving magical uh, practical praxis and theurgy are the nature of the adventure. Mm. Um, but it has to be approached with the right attitude. You know, I, and I'm, I'm no saint in this regard. When I was a teen, you know, I was outed in sixth grade by someone I never met to my family. You? Yeah. That person. Um, and so you better believe I went to the dollar store and got every black candle I could find. Oh, did you? Yeah, and you know, a brown recluse crawled into their mouth and rotted their mouth out. And how I found out it was them is because their whole mouth was covered in gauze. So, you know, I, I've done those things. I've been on that adventure of uh, accumulation, Um, but any pursuit, if taken on with the wrong spirit is corrupting. Yes, right. Doing even a good thing at the wrong time can be uh, very damaging. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to 
climb too high too fast can be damaging, as we all know from falling from trees as children. Yeah, and I've seen people get consistency with the LRP and the middle pillar and not, not do the contemplative work that follows along with that and become inflated. Oh yeah, like when I first started doing LVRP and, 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 and BRH with the analysis of the keyword and then throwing in the, the SIRP, like, you know, but then I tried to self-initiate using Don Craig's book into a Adeptus Minor and we did it on Midsummer. I'm going to release that diary entry at some point, but like we got attacked by spirits and I was like stricken to the ground and frozen and in spasms. It was fucked up, you know, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm missing something. And sure, I was missing everything from the tarot, con what the tarot contemplation meditations and rituals, which are, I can't stress how important that stuff is. Um, the cont contemplative aspect of training your senses and then into path working where you're dealing with the little grimy parts of yourself and facing them, naming them and moving on. And, and I think as you would probably agree, psychologically, like the real power of psychological healing is the recognition and naming process, correct? It, yes, that to bring light to the unconscious. And I also think to um, in more modern cognitive behavioral perspective, um, helping someone along this process of change, going from pre-contemplative to contemplative to uh, action and maintaining and then contending with relapse. That like having support along that journey while these things are surfacing. So it, it hits you from multiple points. But I, uh, when I say this, many ceremonial folks are either aghast or they look at me like um, I'm a poser. I don't do any infernal work anymore. Yeah, I, I did that in a locked ward. You know, I, I've I've I have seen it externalized and negotiated with it, and uh, and so I also think that to each their own. And just as the creation of magical objects is my vocation, some people evocation is their journey. But I'm concerned with the the frequency at which people become demon obsessed. It's, it's de rigueur these days, right? Everyone's into infernal stuff and demons. And I, 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 I don't really know what to make of it, except like I keep thinking that uh, it's a, something that's appealing to undeveloped people who are a little bit power hungry and power mad and have never spent uh, much time at all working out their, their inner self um, and they're, they're lost in, in their false self. Now, I look forward to actually having an old friend and fellow initiate in the GD, Arendelle Overman on, if you've heard of him, I'm sure everyone's heard of him, his books are all over the place, but he's gone into that stuff, but I don't think going into uh, working with demons makes you infernal or some black magician, no, no, no. because as we know, there's spirits, I don't have a dualist conception of these spirits, but like even, even the lighter spirits can be sort of dicks in, in, in the wrong context, right? Um, there's like the Enochian keys with no temple furniture and preparation and see see what they have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what can I say? I mean, uh, I was trained in some techniques in using Enochian without physical tablets, but I don't use them. So that might say something, right? Um, at the very least, I like to have a tablet of union there, um, as strong as my astral work might be. Yeah. Um, that's another bit that I think is important about 
producing objects in this practical realm is to show people that even if I'm innovating in some postmodern ways, high fidelity um, execution of grimoire material is possible. And that um, it is worth trying to maintain fidelity in whichever ways are most reasonable and achievable versus working with the lesser key with no triangle and just a paper sigil in your hand and you know that sort of thing that uh, we can aspire to more engagement than that yeah i don't think people should get into grimoire stuff or advanced magic in just paper cutout formats for the sake of just getting going on it there's so many other techniques to just get going on that you don't need tools for like pathworking again still underestimated or tatwas Tatwa's working is so effective as a way of learning to connect with spirits, maybe first in your microcosm, because I believe magic that doesn't rend the veil is all microcosmic. If I just sit here and say, vibrate bune, I believe the bune I'm going to get is going to be a microcosmic reflection of boon. It's not going to be the spirit showing up evoked in my physical space. Mm -hmm. That's what I believe is going on there. And there's some debate I know between uh, people like S. Connolly and and the, the Ashen Chassans of the world who, who uh, sort of find contention with those two practice, practices, but I don't find a contention. I find a very easy theoretical explanation. You're working with microcosmic reflections versus the macrocosmic entity, you know? I don't know. Is, yeah, I, and I, I, uh, I hold through experience that things are usually true at multiple levels of valency. Well, it doesn't take much DMT to realize that all of these things are true in so many ways that you can't, we just, we still don't, we don't even understand how we're interacting with the physical universe, right? The new research is coming out that uh, it's just, it's just not the, what we think it is. It's more complicated. And, and when you, when you go back to old religious scriptures saying we'll never really fully know in this body, you know, we just see through a lens darkly that resonates more and more, the more science goes along and goes, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And we haven't even seen dark matter yet. Hopefully this year with some scientists I, I met, like, you know, once we see that we might have to, so to come up with these too many systematic theosophies and, and theories based on our praxis uh, is, is very risky. Um, you might end up being one of those, like, like the Egyptologists who now have to throw out their dissertations. Yeah. And, and, you know, having, having an idea that, that doesn't, hold water through your experience you know we all experience that but um trying to do practical work to modulate fundamental aspects of your own life while discovering whether or not that's true is very much jumping off of a cliff and um my hope at least with like the content i'm putting out is to help people who have really broad access to these be beginner materials and old grade paperwork and things um, to help them get to a point where um, they actually engage in those things in a high fidelity way and are able to take the books on their shelf that they are intimidated by and read them and see plainly the, the expression of the ground in those, in those words. That there's a, there's a big gap in the ceremonial community in the middle. We have tons of material to tell people what rituals to start off with and all that kind of stuff. But after that, it's they're in the wilderness. Yes. That was why I joined 
the Golden Dawn back in 96 because I was like, okay, I can do the analysis of the keyword and all these GD rituals and feel like a god, mm-hmm. but I'm not a god. And I'm, I also, let's face it, I'm 15 and what can you know at that age, though you feel like you know everything. But I just said to myself, and I, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I was like, what if I just do this training for better or for worse, and then I'll, I'll know whatever I know. And uh, that was great because it does take you past that beginning stage relatively quickly and into this very strange middle ground where really it's, it's you and God facing off in this theurgical alchemical process of uh, cleaning out your alembic so that when you do start pouring the light of the divine into it, you know, you can actually see through the grime or hopefully have no grime on it so that it's a pure vessel and you can actually work with that, that, that element and that force. Um, and that's where I think the orders still have uh, a lot to offer or working in a coven or a dedicated group and going through some system. I mean, Orders are valuable, for example, because anytime you take a, thousands of people and run them through a system over 10 years, and the ones who are really serious about it stick around to help others, you're going to get a lot of good information from a lot of good people. That's the majority of what you're going to get. And I've sort of put the baby to bed on talking about the, the wariness of, of orders. I've covered that stuff. So I want to focus now, I think, for the rest of my life on, on the good stuff, which I can always always sort of held on to most myself anyway. Um, and that, that's what it is. It's like 99% of it is really good that you're going to get from working with a large number of people in a dedicated system. And once you finish all of that, you have the tools to go forward and look at most books. I was just at a cult book store yesterday evening, uh, you know, getting a little early birthday present for myself. Um, and there's no books when I go to a cult bookstore that I go, oh, wow, I wonder that's that's too complex or that's this like, you know, I used to look at A.E. Wait and be like, oh, I can't understand that back when I was young. But once you've gone through and gotten the basic rubrics of training, you don't get mystified by these texts anymore. You see just how to use them. And that's yes. the value. Mm-hmm. That's the value of, of some sort of formal training. And, and, you know, maybe seven years is too long for most people to do formal training. But if you want to talk about true simony, I think you uh, might agree, but tell me if you don't. The real charlatans are probably those who have just read a few books and started making cutouts or tools and are selling them, walking themselves through a, a how-to step. I mean, if you've been at this only a couple of years and you're selling talismans, that's where I, I would say I would be concerned about the simony aspect of it because it's all fecundity because you don't have con you don't know what home smells like you don't know what the the ground feels like you have not like if you have not had that contact it can only take your work so far um, and I, I you know I I frame it this way the people who are just starting are the most excited. And often they become the most vocal. Yeah. Um, and it's good because it gets other people excited as well. Uh, but those who are of the disposition, who do have a lot of experience, I encourage them to participate more actively in the no sphere and the community of, of occult thought digitally um, so that we have a counterbalance to that naive fervor. 
I can only imagine how I would have been if the internet had been a thing when I started, like back in 94, when I had gone through my first hundred magic books and done a bunch of rituals and knew that I was the greatest Supreme Magus that ever had existed, you know, <laughs> as, as I mean, I mean, how could you not be at 14? Um, there was no way for me to communicate that to everyone. So you just, you know, put on some eyeliner, grow your hair and shut the fuck up until you find one or two souls who want to start a witch coven with you, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. One of them was a Satanist, but we're like, at first I was like, no, 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 I don't want someone who's into Satanism. And then my buddy Daniel was like, but he's all there is. And we're like, okay, yeah, like, let's do it. And, uh, and it was fun. We did a lot of amazing magic. We did a lot of psychic development work, like practicing our clairvoyance and clairsentience and testing it. And as that, and learning how those different things would work and really developing quite a lot along those lines. Um, but, you know, and when we did came time for like Sabbaths and rituals, you know, I would do one for spiritual transformation or gnosis and the Satanists would do one for sexual potency and it all worked out. You know, everyone gets sort of what they want and he be, he's a, he's, I think a happy person these days and we're all happy people. And well, except for the other guy, he became a therapist and all these girls have now had to like report on him. Oh, yeah, yeah. The bane of therapeutic existence is that problem. Yeah, um, it's pervasive. But yeah, I think um, any community that is engaged in a practice who is willing to put up with each other's stuff will experience some kind of growth. Uh, I find in my history providing group therapy versus individual therapy, if you can get a good group, people progress faster than when they're just in individual therapy. And it's not because people are me by all means. I'm just, I was just there to bumper discussion and, and keep it going in the right direction. Um, it's not that people are communicating these revelations. It's a transmission through presence of other people developing around you and the gravitational pull of that. Um, and so I think it's important that people who have been doing this contemplative work and research, et cetera, participate because that, that makes sure that we are gravitationally pulling in the right direction. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, kind of going back to what I'm doing, I, uh, I, I can pay, I can pay bills and things with what I do, but I'm not, that's not the focus. If, if I was told through divine revelation that it's either choose divine union or choose practical magic, all the books, all the things would be burned that very night. It would be no question. Yeah. Uh, I just don't find that experientially that has been the case. Yes. No, I don't think it is. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think that there's a intention is very important. I think that where what you're trying to achieve and build for yourself is important because the spirits know or your higher self knows or whatever knows, the universe knows um, whether or not you're coming from a place of just trying to perpetuate your own work and service to the planet, or if you're avaricious. And I have written a, a little bit here and there and spoken a little bit on the, the spiritual sins. And uh, 
when you have avarice in your heart, it's a thing. That's a thing. Mammon is a thing. I mean, with this whole whatever great reset or just even destruction of our, I mean, America, I can't even, I can't believe what's happening to you guys. It's breaking my fucking heart. Oh, I can't, I can believe it. Oh, I, I don't like it, but I can believe it. I, <laughs> As a, uh, growing up and growing up in this area, I certainly can believe it. <laughs> my, my whole family has been radicalized. Which side? <laughs> Which way? <laughs> um, all. Always, <laughs> everyone's shot uh, up. Except for my, except for my spouse's family, per, virtually everyone is a proud boy, and all oh of wow. Yeah, no, most my family's like I guess what what Michael Malice would call blue pilled. Mostly, they just sort of they see if they if they see the news, which they don't really care about. If whatever they read in the papers, that's what's what's true, and that makes that makes sense. I actually didn't foresee the brainwashing of of the world being quite as effective as it has been demonstrated to have been. I thought it would be. I thought it wouldn't hold up. Naive little me. Um, but uh, then I looked into things like Project Mockingbird and found out they never ended. And it's like, okay, of course this worked. Of course it worked. And it's it's sad to see so many people um, just uh, taking the spoonful of sugar and believing what they're told. Because I, I think the writing's on the wall that we're in, we're in trouble. They're definitely entering some sort of dystopia. But of course, we've done it many times in history. But yet this feels different because both it's happening when we're alive and also because things don't ever people say history always repeats itself and the, the same things always happen but that's not true they'd never happen the same way it rhymes it rhymes that's brilliant that's brilliant do you remember any of your rhyming poems from back in your early days any of your rhyming spells that you want to share one no i i wish i, I had them. saved them they were they were always a b a b scheme mm. rhyming and um, they were immediately burned because I had to cover I had to cover my tracks. Yeah. I um, although I have close friends who have always known I was of a stranger ilk. Uh, most of my magical development was a complete interiority. It was a completely private affair, um, and I only really engaged in social media when challenged by a very uh, spiritually enlivened friend who said it was time. Yeah, see, that's what Edward Reeb did to me. He, he, he evoked me out of the class. He's like, he's, like, he's like, I think the world could use what you have to offer, you know, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Because he was like, I'm, I got to head off to India and start a new life for myself. And maybe you could help out with humanity. I was like, me? All I was doing at the time was playing three, four hours of Celtic music every night at, at clubs and pubs. And I was like, I don't know if, if I have much to say, but of course that wasn't true. <laughs> I, my plan when I was a, a child before things really got rattled was to be, be a monk. Yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Well, all of yeah. my teachers in elementary school were, were uh, sisters and they made sure I knew very early that doing something in a priestly vocation would have been aligned for me. Um, like they, ha they were having me do the readings for mass and um, answering questions on theology from the priests. And if I was not in mass, 
the priest or the monsignor would come into my classroom in the middle of the class and interrogate me as to why I was not there. Oh, fun stuff. Yeah, and, and so I always had the idea that I would just disappear or, or live a, a, a contemplative life a la Merton. Uh, He's my hero. I actually won the Daggy Thomas Merton Scholarship in, in grad school. It's, it's the only scholarship I've ever gotten. Um, he and I share a birthday. We're both born January 31st. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I, I share my birthday with two of my heroes, Thomas Merton, and uh, I've written a lot on him. Um, and the other person who I share the same birthday and same year with is, is another true mystic, Justin Timberlake. And that's like, you know, looking in the mirror because we're basically the same person. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little prettier, but um, we both sing well and dance well. And I think he knew Britney Spears a little bit better than I did. But, you know, you know, it's not over yet. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know who my birthday aligns with. I always had a dream that I was uh, distantly related to Violet uh, Firth, a.k.a. Dion Fortune. Yeah, my first hero. Mm-hmm. I read the the mystical Kabbalah over and over again. Yep. I read it in 777 at the same time, or rather the book that contains 777, the classic yeah. white and black one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until after Hurricane Katrina, after that like reality crisis, yeah. that I was able to go back and read those things and the Tao Te Ching and, being, and approach it from an angle of at least conceptual understanding and to see plainly what was written on the page reflected in my heart, you know? Amazing. Amazing. What's your take on reincarnation? I think every, every human that has ever lived and everything that has ever crawled this green earth is a reincarnation of each other. Yeah. That like more of like an animus mundi sort of like, uh, there, there's, there's no person to reincarnate, but in a complementary fashion, the person is real. Like, it's the, it, it is a mystery. Yeah, I think there's so many other more likely explanations why someone would have a past life memory of being this famous person or this nobody or this or that or whatever, rather than they're that soul literally leapfrogged and pre repackaged in another body in some very, a very primitive way, it sort of sounds just so simplistic, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Plus everyone is, you know, how many Moina Mathers and McGregor Mathers are there? There's too many, everyone's them. It's like more likely to me that in a multi-dimensional sense, we all were them in some reality. Like there's no evidence right now, is there, that I'm living in my own dimension, you're living in your own dimension and we're reflecting in each other's not in a hypothetical sense, but in a real sense. Like there, that's, that's possible. And I, I think we, if we're talking about higher dimensionality, which an idea of transmigration has to have some room for a higher dimension, dimensionality, we can only see phenomena as they pass through like a phase space. So to like take the idea of a holy guardian angel and take the, uh, take the phenomena of passing a hand through an MRI. You, you see segmentation of the thing. You see form, which is truth, but partial. Um, and 
just due to the nature of our sense, like sensorium and the construction of this reality, um, I think it's very easy to become enamored with the segment and to not see the full. That the, I, I think if people have reincarnation experiences, they very well like, they could be in the flow of anima that is connected to that past experience. But I also think there is more to that. Like more things should be included if a transmigration takes place, it carries far more things than a, than a person. Yeah. And one thing for sure that I think, this is what I really think, is I don't believe we're going to get the answer. And if people, because a lot of people want the answer, right? They want to know what it really is. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to get the answer through spiritual means. No. Right? We're going to get it. Like when we know it, know it, that will be because physics or something, whatever comes after physics, figures it out and we'll know, we'll really know. Um, I just love yeah. hard sciences for better or for worse, but you know what I mean? It's just like, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on understanding what dreams and deja vu and, and, and intuition, how they function, but they're real. No one denies they're real. Oh, I, I know. I've had I, I've had multiple experiences where my mother has walked into my dreams from my like I'm experiencing my dream and my mother walks in and then I wake up and she calls me and tells me about a dream she had of me told from her vantage point within my dream. Yeah, yeah. So crazy. you know, that's I, see, that's not something that it's just in your head because your mom had it. So why is not science? investigating this more what the fuck guys get your shit together like maybe you need more funding we'll talk to elon i heard he made a few bucks the other day um but like i was just going through my old astral travel journals and i posted one on uh, hermeticmysteryschool.com which is my new site i'm launching on my birthday when i turn 40 i figure that's the kabbalistic age to really get serious about this stuff up until now in my life i've just been play acting but oh, now yeah. when i turn 40 i can get the true respect of the hasidim for my heretical hermetic Kabbalism. <laughs> um, and in that diary, my one of my first astral travel experiences, I went to my high school, I went walked into my classroom, and then another classmate showed up, and we said we spoke. And then the, then at school, that classmate said I had a dream and I was in this classroom and you showed up and asked what I was doing there or something like that. And, and at the time, I wrote it all down as you do in your diaries, why diaries are so important. Um, and I, I, I wasn't surprised by it really that much at the time because I was so much a believer in everything new age. I was very young, right? And just full of belief and raised by an astrologer mom. And I was like, it's all, it's all, that was my reality. I didn't understand anything else. But looking back on it as an adult now, I'm like, wait, hold the horses. That happened? Like, like that's crazy. And it's crazy because no one in the scientific world is studying it. And most of the time it's completely written off out of hand. Right. I mean, they're like, Oh, that it's all just make believe hooey. It's like, how can it? No, come on. Uh, yeah. I, and you know, me. I, I, um, I've developed relationships with certain spirits over time that the whole pretense of our relationship was based in, repeated dreams which which prove meaningful in the material world like 
um, as my husband was starting medical undergraduate in med school, not in residency. Grey's uh, Anatomy. Yeah, yeah. I, I started having um, dreams of who I now know to be Santissima Muerte. Who is that? And, uh, like Santa Muerte. Santa Muerte. Yeah. And uh, she would come to me in her three traditional robes and tell me, like, we need to work together. We have plans. Uh, like your your husband is going to do important work, which is relevant to my domain. Mm. She was more interested in helping. Uh, of course, she she is a great ally in protecting me from the magical drama of New Orleans, which does exist, although not in like the CW fashion that people would like it to be. Yeah, you know, no, there's a lot of acrimony among communities and people burying shit in your yard and that kind oh, of stuff. Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm friends with Celeste, right? And we've talked a lot on the phone just as friends and I've heard stories and seen pictures of the kind of bullshit that people get up to there. It's, it's yeah. very real for y'all in New Orleans. Yeah, she's been, so she's been very helpful in that regard but she's more interested in what he's doing. And he ended up doing pathology, which is basically the study of disease. Like he's the one who looks at your body part and decides whether or not it is cancer and how bad it is and decides whether or not the surgeon should proceed or, you know, making very serious life and death decisions. Yeah, uh, you know. right. um, and so uh, dreams are, are of importance. And I think, um, Sometimes they can re reverberate in ways that remind you that what you do in the material is of import. We can dismiss philosophically the mundane and the material and the, the personal actions, but sometimes even simple things can cause a quaking in that space in, in Yasod. You know, I. Um, my, my husband likes to performatively read things. He's one of those ones who, if he's, if there's not a diva playing in the shower, he's not showering, you know? So he grabbed the lesser key of Solomon. Oh, and, a diva. For a second, yeah. I thought you, I was like, don't you mean Devo? No. <laughs> no, more like Ariana Grande. Um, oh, too bad. I'm a big uh, Josh Freeze fan, so. Deep oh, okay. would have tickled me, but Ariana Grande, well, you know, why not? Why not? But yeah, he, he grabbed the lesser key of Solomon and was just reading it as if you would if you had a camera on you. He was reading the conjuration. And I snapped at him and told him, like, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that here. Um, and I had a dream that night of the this very place I'm in now, but as it was before. And a woman led me to an armoire and one of the drawers of the armoire was rattling and there was something growling and scratching inside. And she said, you need to tell him not to be reading from that book. We don't do that shit in this house. You need to get, you need to take care of this. Yeah. And so I, I gave it license to depart in my sleep and never had any problems from it. But it's a reminder that sometimes even the things we don't take seriously can actualize. That's the interesting mystery of, of practical magic is what seems so far-fetched and impossible is actually so imminently possible that it requires spiritual discipline and fortitude to handle it correctly.
sort of goes back to what we were talking about with the, the using of paper tools for Solomonic work so you can just get right into it right away. It's like there's a seriousness that comes from the manufacturing of magical tools properly, like in the Golden Dawn, the elemental weapons, and then the advanced tools. But then with the Solomonic and Grimoire stuff, all these different things, like the 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 preparation of it and the dedication it takes to like get it by a Dremel or just learn how to use a saw for the first time, which most people don't, you know, aren't raised by carpenter dads like me. And the idea of like making an altar or I made this bookshelf when I was 16, 17, 15. Oh, wow. Awesome. That's, oh yeah. Well, I, I hate carpentry really, but, but my dad's a master at it. So once in a while I make things because I can, but, um, the two, the ability, the dedicated time it takes to make those magical tools well, I think has a lot to do with the outcome of your operations afterward. And I think that's something people should understand before they just keep taking the quick and easy path. Like it's really awesome. We have people like Jason Newcomb out there who has these stores where you can buy everything you need. Because for me, like, you know, I had most of my stuff that I owned period in this world stolen. And uh, I can't remake everything. And uh, there's nothing wrong with buying a prepackaged full Enochian set, perhaps. Um, I may well do that and, and work with that because there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I've, I've already developed the, the habit and the discipline of making tools all the time. I've got a bunch of wands on the go right now. And, you know, that's, it's just you have to have that in your being, I think, that kind of, it, it develops your willpower develops your willpower and the I, the material um re, the relationship that one forms with the material with which they work and the the legacy of the technique employed so for for clay yeah let's hear about that let's such, hear about a, such a primal material that is um so energetically conductive and um so enduring but incredibly fickle like even masters lose about 20 percent of their work and that's just people who are just making pieces then not let's not even talk about magical pieces one of the things i've learned in my ex ex kind of experiments is that if you're making an object at least in clay and you finish one part of it but don't finish the rest of it and you have a major conjunction like with jupiter and saturn shifting and things it is unlikely the object will survive at least in the manner that you want it to interesting and, and so i think i think there is a tension and the and the dual aspect of its nature that it's it's quasi born under one nativity and then finished in another because firing is a whole different ritual process yeah that um your your timing both planetary and the respecting the the time gating that the clay gives you like for people who don't know if you make something that is clay and you just stick it in the kiln to fire it and it is wet it will explode if you don't cover it it will crack there's there are so many things that can go wrong that it requires that you slow down and um with inscription there's such a long magical current of scribes 
do you have a finished piece of work you can show for those who get to the video? Sure. Let, me, let me grab some. Yeah, you have such a nice, beautiful setup there. It's a, it's a treat for those who get to see the video. So this is one of the things that I most commonly produce for people. Um, it's hard to see the sigil work here because of the lighting, but it is a tabernacle for a phone. Um, for a phone. For a phone. It utilizes a, a, probably a few hundred sigils that are created in an apophatic state as I use a large ledger of intentions as a kind of guide as I'm working in trance. And it's topped with the, the brazen vessel uh, seal from the seal of, uh, from Solomon. So the idea is to contain the, the phone and its internet relationship in a manner that facilitates a relationship with the internet that is equal and power dynamic so that the, you can encounter the intelligences relevant to the action of the internet in a manner that is advantageous to you and spiritually healthy. Very cool, very cool. I, I might need you need one of those sort of things to contain my can of awesome and spice. Yeah, anytime. And you know, I also utilize like uh, Olympic spirits. And, those, are, and, those are my favorites. So what I do is I, mean, I they told me they whenever when I first started working with them uh, in the Golden Dawn, as I think I was seventeen at the time. I was shocked by the things they told me. Like it was so clearly they were telling me things that didn't come from my own brain or had to put things in my brain together in ways I could never have imagined them. Like uh, uh, the spirit on, of Venus. I was, I asked about advice on, you know, dating or interacting with girls and the things it said, I was like, what, what are you saying? And then I asked some, some dangerous questions. Like, how would you, you know, how would you, how would you do this? And like blah 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 and then they would take it sometimes to some slightly darker spots like spirit would say but if you want to achieve this you can do this 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 and i'd be like that's nasty you nasty spirit oh my god don't say that ew right yeah. you're just like whoa and it's all in this uh synchronous simultaneous way that like doesn't have doesn't give you room to steal yourself or whatever they might say yeah exactly right yeah oh god yeah, it sounds so like you really worked with them, brother. So what I do, I do astral work, but when I have an idea for an object, um, talismans are are, are um, easy in the sense that they're smaller and they're they're easy they're uh, easier for people to apprehend the function of. There, there's a historical precedent for them, but the creation of novel magical apparatus is what truly motivates me. So when I'm trying to develop a new apparatus, it, in, it necessitates that I voyage into the astral and speak with these spirits, in this case, Ophiel, about whether or not they would consent or um, be down for providing governance over the object. So I present a thesis about how this object could be constructed and then they cut half of it apart and tell me I'm wrong. And then they tell me like, you know, maybe think about this differently. 
And once that kind of negotiation is done, I seek to elicit an, okay, yes, I'll make sure these things don't go completely haywire on people. And whenever someone receives one of my objects, I'm available on an ongoing basis as like, as a technician, like I'm the Maytag man for their magical object. Awesome. Because I, that's part of the problem with the sale of magical objects is that most people who are purchasing them are not prepared to troubleshoot. And a lot of, yeah, and a lot of the sellers don't actually know what they're doing these days. So they don't actually have much advice to give you if they're yeah. ignorant terms go awry. I'm a, I'm a big fan of divination. I use a split uh, tarot Lenormand methodology. So glad you said that. There's so many people doing magical operations without a divination first to see what the result might be. Like how and, stupid can you be? And honestly, it's difficult with, with ceramic because you have these unusual things happen with the objects and you don't know whether it's because of a material praxis or spiritual technique. Mm. And so it has to be, I have to do, kind of figure out where it went wrong. Is it a material issue or, or something yeah. else? And then if it is something else, what is that and how can it be remedied? I think that's why in evocation, there's so much emphasis on the days of purification and fasting leading up to the operation, right? So it's like that way you can at least rule that out. Whereas mm -hmm. if you don't do the preparation and the fasting for three days and uh, cleansing of yourself, if it doesn't work, the problem could have just been you. Yeah, right? and I, um, I seal everything I create unless people specify otherwise in oil of obramelin that I manufacture or create myself. Oh, you do? And, yes, I, and I, but I, I use calamus instead of galangal because the, the translation from what I understand from recent scholarship, it, it seems that calamus would, would have been actually indicated. So it's a little different, but I, I try and follow the Exodus recipe to the letter um, and then add planetary orology. So, uh, pouring of the oil and, and gathering of the materials on the solar daylight hour on Sunday. And um, I don't drink, I don't do any drugs, uh, and I pray over the, over the vessels for the full six weeks on an ongoing basis so that I have it available to seal the pieces. Because I don't actually use glaze. Um, I use something, a Slavic technique called vara, which is basically a large vat of sourdough starter. So it's like beer, yeast, water, sugar, um, and I add occult ingredients. So um, the real problem with your work is, for someone like me, is that it's not gluten-free. Yes, it is not gluten-free. <laughs> Certainly not. Gluten is why it has a color. Um, I can avoid that if I just abstain from eating your project yes I, just don't Nothing, I don't make any food safe things and i'm glad i i don't because dishware is soul sucking for me like making the same cup or same bowl over and over again oh yeah not for me but um so in addition to all of those traditional ingredients i have some occult ingredients and i try in an animistic fashion to work with the yeast as the intelligence of that mixture 
and the bucket is covered in sigils that modulate, like basically provide them instructions about like, this is how we make objects magical. Um, and when the pieces have reached temper temperature in the kiln, I open it while it's still red hot and the pieces are red hot. Wow. And I have a Kevlar glove, but I stick my whole arm into the kiln at 2000 degrees and pull them out and dip them in the mixture and then immediately in water to seal the color. So the it is a trial by fire every time. Wow. Um, wow. And I, I fire at night. I, I'm an hour and a half away from my kiln. It's greatly limiting my firing cycle, but I recently got unlimited course. I can take as many classes forever as I want in Tulane and not pay anything. So I can, I'm going to use their studio facility soon and that will make, help me speed things up. But for now, I have to travel an hour and a half and um, I get there usually at like nine at night. And once the kiln is loaded, it's all night meditative work with the pieces while they're in the kiln. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people um, don't get the, uh, the all-nighter thing and realize that uh, we... <laughs> That's three to four o'clock. Yeah, you know, people uh, get a little shocked sometimes when they encounter their first 12 or 24-hour ritual. And it's like, yeah, this stuff's hardcore. Stephen Skinner was just talking about it on, uh, on uh, Jason Newcomb's podcast that he dropped uh, about, look, these, you wanna, he said you want to be in shape for these evocations because you know you might have to do each step four or five times and that's another thing i was glad about training in the golden dawn you know you're doing these rituals for hours and hours and hours and the time flies it does fly like it, it you don't feel like it's boring or taking forever and uh but you need to go through that rigorousness and build up that resilience to be able to go through it and it sounds like you're applying the same sort of vigor and indefatigable strength to your work and that's a really good thing to hear i mean there's just uh more and more people going to be looking for quick and easy paths to magical power i think as this popular popularity of occultism continues and it's not going away anytime soon eh no uh, have you ever read the bloodstream sermon by bodhidharma no okay so um he says you enter through one of two gates reason or practice um, and by practice, he basically details in the Bloodstream Sermon, practice is beating your head up against the vicissitudes of life over and over again until you have no choice but to be cornered into the divine reality. You know, I love um, that. And um, the practical magic is a hook for people who are in that gradual space to encounter the numinous from their their place of understanding. And it is, it is longer, it is not as robust in some senses, but um, for some it is the journey. Uh, and I, it's interesting for me because I, I'm very social with, with ceremonial folk, but ceremonial people are not people who collect my work in general. The people who collect my work are in African traditional religions. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And so I, I see just as much as like representing magic, I, I, 
I hope to engender some sense of magical diplomacy across communities. That's what I'm all about as well. Yeah. Because as we're coping with the social reality where so many assumptions and attitudes are having to be revisited, the easy answer is to completely insulate communities and to not learn about those things which are closed to you, but are worth knowing about as an outsider. Um, like, I will never work with the Loa or an Arisha, but I know who they are, you know? And I think that that's missing. I do, no, I've never said that before, but my secret uh, love is, is the Loa and how I do ancestor work is through the jars. And uh, I've never said that out loud because that's how I, it doesn't matter how I do magic. That's, but that's what I love. I do love that. Why? Uh, well, for me, I mean, I, I've seen firsthand what their community initiations have done for people. And they've been so potent and life transforming that I would, I would be reluctant to start without that happening. And I also respect Ifa as an oracle, which Western occultism knows almost nothing about, but it makes the I Ching look like a pamphlet. Yeah. And um, so I think magical diplomacy is important because so many things will be lost and there's so much room for conflict if we don't make it our business to know about those things which we do not practice at at least to the competency of an outsider exactly yeah exactly and and you know you can like i i read it was in the 90s i read divine horseman by maya darren right and that was my mind explosion and uh i started doing workings experiments for lack of a better magical word with uh with Gidi and and Erzuli and Baron Samdi and I had a lot of personal successes and still do have a close relationship with especially Gidi. Mm. I wrote a song about him once that uh that I'm gonna release one day. I did a version of it with the Celtic band but it wasn't up to par you know. Yeah uh the the New Orleans community is such that um it'd probably that... be hostile to me appropriating uh uh, the Loa and Voodon through mm -hmm. my Golden Dawn framework, eh? Yeah, the OTO is not going to like hearing this. Like the local oasis is not going to like hearing this. Oh, poor but Many of the community view them as interlopers. Well, they're, uh, the OTOs lost a lot of respect, especially, you know, they just banned hundreds of their own members and top ranking members at that. I, mm. I, may, I may have an insight, inside view into that. And well, actually, I'm one of the managers of Thelema Tube on YouTube now. I don't know why they, why why uh, Lilith decided to have a golden donor like me and be able to freely upload videos. But shout out, let's build some bridges because you know we're all just human beings. We're yeah. human beings. That's like I keep saying it, but I'm gonna say it again. What happened to humanitarianism? Was it so bad? Did we need to abandon it for whatever the hell we're doing now? It's part of that golden dawn vow though, right? The respecting the, the material of others and their tradition as it is relevant to their spiritual development. Right, yeah, people shit on the golden dawn a lot, but it's like. And now a word from our sponsors.
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. You know, some, that's some good values. And chaos magic is getting flack from people as well. Is it really? Uh, it is, uh, particularly from um, natural magic and animistic communities uh, who question its efficacy. That, that's the issue. It's not so much that, it, that it's a problem politically, but that they question the efficacy. Yeah. Uh, I've and, been doing a lot of chaos magic since uh, during my silent period from 2005 to 2015 when I started when I got summoned by Edward and uh, I discovered some stuff worked really well and some stuff didn't work so well for me I, you know pick and choose as, as you will of course yeah that bore out for me as well I, I use a lot of um, methodology of what has fallen under chaos magic exactly exactly yeah that's why I use the term postmodern more and that there's a deconstruction of the 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 capital T truth and paradigmatic fixation and that sort of thing. And also I have someone use the word properly. Yeah. And so I, um, I do a lot of sigil shoaling, which is a new chaos style of iterating a bunch of different sigils, all with um, kind of in an orchestra of cooperative intentions and placing a single intention, which is guaranteed to be efficacious. Like I will eat rice or I will drink water so that the actualization of that creates a gravity that moves the whole. Oh, uh, interesting. I've, I've found that that's very effective, just grouping things together in batches according to their natures and, and inserting those sort of elements. Um, and I've done servitor work and, and things, but um, the, the word chaos and the, um, like the octarine system and things are very little interest to me. I don't know that. Yeah, my my knowledge is is limited on that stuff. Again, I just you know I'll read some things and then then take it to the take it into the circle. That's that's what it's always been about for me. Again, that's the benefit of once you get to a certain point, you just know how to use things and 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 work with them and learn from them and then learn from the spirits and, mm-hmm. and your own higher self. That's that's what it's all about. It's what it's a boot. I love I, what you just described, though, and I think that's something I'm going to have to try is it's almost like stacking sigils or, or using the essence of each of them intertwined towards a final end. Is that a description mm-hmm. of it? Yeah. So, uh, like, for example, if I'm trying to turn a hurricane, a, a sigil that gives a barometric pressure range and one that is about temperature, et cetera, all these various and sundry variables which could be modulated to the aim rather than just doing one sigil of like, we're safe from hurricanes, right? Um, apropos of your city, eh? Yes, hurricane turning is a pastime here. And every year there are sacrifices to, to keep those things away. And I, re- I respect it. I've found this to be the case. Um, I, I know practical magic is not your bread and butter, but I find it funny that weather magic is actually some of the easiest to push out 
Oh yeah, we all discover that at a young age, don't we? Yeah, it's so it goes to show that the that the means of manifestation are more important than the size of the objective. Mm. That as long as there is a recourse to the to, uh, to the the issue, and that it's possible even if it seems so magnanimous that you're reluctant to attempt it, um, but. I, that's another thing that um, that practical magic has given me is coming up with an intention and and being in a space of if we're thinking al kendi like alignment of rays in as narrow and full a, a sense as possible right so in, in the in the space where divine contact feels most present um and then moving on from that and then being reintroduced to an aspect of the divine reality through something that i pretended i was the author of like i i see it as every every spell that has ever been cast everything that has ever been done has already been done this is the 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 theater of it is just a joyful process of reminding. It goes back to what I almost finished saying earlier with the healing ethos of the work is, is the, the, the goal is not the outcome. The goal is, is that is the sanctification of that process. You might say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of like physica or, or medicinal magic for sale, uh, as someone with a hospital background, that that is a line for me. Not that I think that it's not possible, but um, there is an anti-science sentiment that is really proliferating in occult communities. I don't know to what degree ceremonial versus others, but um, just what the algorithms deliver unto me is very anti-science. And um, magic and science co-evolved. And if we forget that and make science our enemy, we will lose something very important. A lot and of pieces we, of the puzzle, yeah. And that much more likely to be, pro, uh, uh, be under prohibition and, um, and have to deal with acrimony from the general public as yeah. well. It, it also really discourages uh, those scientists, I think, who might be interested in, in studying the physics of intuition, deja vu and dreams and, and just all of that stuff, right? Like if uh, we want to be inviting to them and say like, look, we want to know what's actually going on. Like math, it, magic should, will ch should change its methodologies in accordance to new scientific findings. Science is relevant in its domain that you know, we can't, we can't divorce its authority from its domain. And I, I understand where a lot of that comes from, though, like having been in a community, namely Baltimore, where people have been abused by the medical industry. Shout out to Baltimore. It turns out actually, that's in my top 10 cities of listeners. So yo, really? yeah, I go figure. I'm like, I don't know who, who what? So shout out to Baltimore. Much love. So they'll, know, they'll know about Henrietta Lacks and about um, <laughs> Dr. Levy. There, there were 
really big medical cases that were abusive to the public, particularly minorities, specifically black women. Um, and I know that that trauma has to be processed. And so the apprehension around science, um, I'm not about to light a torch against, but uh, I think we should be careful of what claims we make in a medical domain. Um, because there are much more interesting and um, revelatory things out there for us to be spending our time on. And the I just wanna make sure people are pursuing the proper avenues of care. Yeah, it would yeah. be good. I, I, I feel strongly that here in Vancouver, we have just in a few block radius, the highest concentration of drug use per capita in the entire Western world. A lot of people don't realize that. And right there down that block from that intersection called Maine and Hastings is an office of a fellow named Dr. Gaber Mate. And are you familiar with his work at all? Well, definitely check out Dr. Gaber Mate. His book on stress is my favorite, but he wrote the book on addiction these days that is amazing called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And that's a phrase, of course, taken from Buddhism. I've heard the I've heard of the book. Yes. He then he then got in some trouble, started using ayahuasca treatments to cure like lifelong childhood up crack addicts, hardcore addicts, and he was getting a massive success rate. It was so popular and it was so effective, of course the government had to shut him down. Because mm -hmm. we, you know, need to support the pharmaceutical companies. They're they're people too, right? Just a little manufacturing <laughs> consent, baby. I've never done ayahuasca or DMT. My psychedelic history started with salvia of all. I haven't, I, yeah, well, that's divinorum, you know, and, and that, yeah. that's something that uh, I look forward to trying as well. I haven't done ayahuasca either, but I've uh, been doing a lot of experiments with spice. I did salvia some uh, hundred odd times, and um, the, the layers of dimensionality that people talk about in DMT experiences, um, it rhymes. It rhymes in that sense. I'm sure. Well, so I, since doing not that space, but still, since doing 22 DMT experiments this year, um, my experiences with with mushrooms have been very different, and I even now sometimes with cannabis can achieve states where I'm seeing into the DMT realm. And what's shocking is. I'll employ meditation one from the golden dawn, even once I'm sober days later, not that it takes days to sober up, but you know what I mean? When I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't actually do this stuff much anymore. I'm turning 40. That, those days are the fun. I, I had fun in my thirties, but like, you know, you gotta. Likewise. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like life, I have always seen my life go in stages and I didn't even drink or do any pot as a kid. I was 24 before I had my first toke. And that was because I was doing Golden Dawn. And I heard that if it, magic was more effective for virgins. So I didn't lose my virginity till I was 19 and, and was, you know, yeah. So I, I, I think life is, is best done in sort of stages and you go through these different things. So again, that's just my approach to, it works for my six planets in air and the methodological training I've had in hermeticism. So, but now I can employ meditation one in a sober state. And if I can just relax, I'll start to see a bit of that traces of the mushroom thing you see, which has become more similar or I'm capable of perceiving it more through the, my, the development of my pineal gland 
as that DMT thing going beyond the, the first initial layer. And if I employ meditation one, I can actually have a full psychedelic experience, which is just focusing on that single point, which, you know, meditation one's actually explained better by Franz Barden than it is in, in the Golden Dawn texts. Um, initiation. Yeah, you know, he describes a lot of the basic techniques. He also gets a bit far out with some of his theories on what's yeah. possible, but yeah, yeah. I mean, on that. yeah, I mean, I mean, he gets a little Dragon Ball Z if we're being, <laughs> um, uh, maybe he was just doing um, perceiving into the future, and he thought what he thought he saw was future magicians was actually like Street Fighter Two and and Dragon Ball, and so he was perceiving pop culture but he didn't know about pop culture because it didn't exist like that yet. And that's what he was seeing. So it was a mistaken Nostradamus type thing. I don't know. I just came up with that. The comic reality of magical force. It, it, it has a way of, of, I think that's. What if you were, what if you lived back then and you gazed into the future in your scrying mirror or your copper bowl and you perceived a Marvel movie. And then you're like, the universe is gonna end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that—that's part of uh, my understanding of Hermes as the trickster. And, and yeah, that. right. I love that yeah. part of Hermes. I also like the part that's not her hermetic in the sense of containment, but the part in that and philosopher, the German philosopher Dr. Paul Good, who tr had me do a lot of translation of Nietzsche in 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 the '90s when I was in Düsseldorf. He would he showed me his book, which I got which is interpreting Hermes as, as the leaper from one realm to another and therefore the god of the liminal. Yes, and absolutely. That's, that's, that's yeah. something uh, I've been saying for a long time when it wasn't popular, but yeah, the psychopomp extraterritorial nature of his movements at once as the same time as being contained in that sign of silence, that's the dual action mm -hmm. that I think really gives us power as magicians. And we, we um, in, in spirit relationships, uh, there can be focus on offerings of a tangible sense. And, and within certain cultural domains, those have completely different connotations. But um, we're talking like lesser key work and stuff, for example. For me, especially with Hermes, um, the offering is becoming the person that can actualize the his agenda as relevant to this domain. Like becoming a representative of that force is the thing. And so you're asking for the thing he wants to give you. You know, um, Orphic hymns are, I, I love the Orphic hymns. Oh yeah. Particularly the uh, Athanasakis translation of, of Hermes's Orphic hymn. Um, I make sure to perform it every Wednesday at the mercurial hour, if only once a week. I usually do it every day. Um, but I had been had that I had that brewing in me for a long time, this this orientation toward Hermes at all of his layers. Um, and I was with a friend one night, and we have a sort of prophetic relationship where we see each other and it's like, okay, this is what you do next. This is what you do next, you know. Oh, that's a that's a good friendship to have. Um, yeah, and uh, he was saying, you know, my Ori or like the spiritual crown is really open right now, and Hermes wants to work with you. And at that very instant, I got a DM from someone in the UK who I was in the same 
Instagram orbit as, but had never worked with. And he's like, why is it that I was in an evocation and the spirit told me to stop to tell you that Hermes wants to work with you? And I, I was like, okay, all right, I'll do the work. <laughs> So that's the trickster element of just like the, the confluences and the, the, the comical realization of the thing that was wanted. Very cool. I like how you say a lot of things. There was something you said just a, a bit before this that uh, I was in the process of wrapping my head around and, and moved on. It's really nice to talk to a, another serious practitioner like yourself. So I'm, I'm glad you reached out very much so. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very different kind of conversation you can have with someone who's done as much work as we've done, right? You know, you can just sort of dive in and, and explore these things and, and learn so much. Um, it really excites me for the future and, and the magical developments we're seeing in this world. I, I, uh, I know some of the Golden Dawn orders are thinking about, like the, some of the good ones are thinking about expanding more into even more open collegial styles that are open to even more people, which I think would be good because mm -hmm. what you're talking about really in that case is some extremely experienced initiates who have never been open to the public at all being available. And uh, I know some, like my, I, my old teacher, I would love to still be able to learn from him, but the only way I could is if I went back to his new order and it's just not in the, not on the cards. It's not on the cards. I did. It's, Literally and metaphorically. It's also not up to me. It's mm -hmm. not up to me. Um, I hear I, you. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was invited to go straight into the second order of one of my favorite Golden Dawn orders out there and have a massive exception made for me. But I had to apologize and say, look, I actually wasn't saying I would, even if this exception would be made. I'm just not, that's not my true will right now. And it was sort of like, I'm, I was just starting a three-year pilgrimage and a dedicated egregore of time and space that I was doing to see. And you know, when you're, once you create an egregore with an intention and you enter into it, that's it. Like you gotta see it through. Like I'm definitely too experienced to be dumb enough to not see that through. So it's sort of like, you're gonna have to just forgive me and honor that I've begun this uh, a, a whole cycle of an Ouroboros here. And uh, once it's, once I get, to, once I swallow my own tail um, and come out the other end, then maybe you could invite me again, but I can't even say where I'll be at then or what my next step will be in. And that where that process took me was to this uh, new beginning in the order of Celtic mysteries and finishing Yeats's initiations and, and his curriculum so that that will be available for people and for me. I'm going to do it over five years and then I'm going to go through it and then I'm going to leave it to those who want to continue it and let it be an organic thing. And, you know, that's, that's the, that's for, that will take me to age 50. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to do. And after that, I'd like to get more into, you know, go to Haiti if the world can settle down and maybe yeah. uh, actually study a bit with the Hungan, uh, something I've always wanted to do as I, I've never mentioned this stuff before because it's my personal desire. Uh -huh. but, but uh, it's nice to nice to share it with you because uh, it is it's a, it holds a deep place in my heart. Those gods, those loa, and the view of them as ancestors and the practices resonates powerfully with me. Uh, in some ways, more powerfully than the Celtic. But but I love it all, and I see it all as a syncretistic, uh, syncretic, and uh, the idea I think of that of cultural appropriation that people get so 
their panties in a knot is so absurd. And even a distinct culture as we know it today was still syncretized from earlier cultures, right? Like, come on folks, like the idea of, of Haitian voodoo being a, 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 a distinct thing is absurd since it came, it was emerging with Catholicism that formed it, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, like that, and that's an interesting timeline to, to look at, at the, how a magical tradition in diaspora transforms its nature in response to power disequilibrium. That the, the um, how the, how a spirit is envisioned can change with the spirit of the time. Um, cultural appropriation, you know, I'm always careful about the materials I use. And even if I have a private practice, what I choose to put out to the public and that, and that sort of thing. But um, it's difficult within magic because syncretism is the bedrock of the Western tradition. And syncretism is so close to appropriation and, and, and how it presents yeah. subjectively. Well, you see, I, I, and I would say further, um, syncretism is the definition of what culture is. Mm -hmm. A culture is syncretistically created and defined by what came before. There is no culture that exists that was ejaculated straight from the pure mind of God on earth, on earth. I mean, except for like, you know, even, and this is proof of that linguistically from the Hebrew Bible. Do you know why, why Adam in Genesis is called, is named Adam? Uh, no, this is, this is one of those things I can share as, as a, from all those, that massive amount of money I spent learning Hebrew in, in seminary. And it's a wordplay. They were like, God made Adam from the ground, right? From the clay. And in Hebrew, the Hebrew culture does word plays and has done since the Bible. And before that, that's how they speak. The, the brass serpent and the, is, the serpent staff is made of brass because it's nahush, nahash, nahushtan, you know? And in Adam, Adam is called Adam because he came from Adama. Adama, Adam, Adam, Adama. It's a, it was a wordplay. It was convenient to what they were writing. Like, yeah, so that's, that's a fascinating thing. It's, it's, so anyone doing gematria on the name Adam to figure out the inner meaning of why the first human being was called Adam is missing the whole point of the cultural development. And that's where, those, that's where culture matters. You do need to see the hermeneutics of the time and place. Otherwise, you're going to just get lost in some crazy uh, fictitious mental tangent. Yeah, it, gematria and uh, like the language analysis of even what was written on cursed tablets like defixiones and that sort of thing. I'm always looking for combinatory logic. L less about what, what the capital T truth is gonna be delivered to me through the arrangement of letters. Um, yeah. And how that same combinatory logic could be applied to linguistic systems I generate myself. So I yeah. have own yeah. separate yeah. magical languages. Like instead of having an alphabet of desire, I have languages of desire. Oh, that, yeah. Tell me more about that. So like um, with, I had, I had uh, an experience on, on mushrooms and it was Amen. like, it's time to make the language. It's time to make the thing. And mm -hmm. um, you went uh, to the fairies. Yeah, I started from phonemic inventory all the way to completing rites, rituals, and mythology for the language. 
uh, to create a robust system that could be written in hieratic script or performed ver uh, vocally um, and experimented with languages like that to discover their operative. And um, that to me is the mystery, is how the aspects of the old can reemerge in the novel and operate in a similar capacity. Like how wonderful is that? Like, wonderful. How wonderful is it that a Wiccan can do candle magic and a ceremonial magician can create a talisman and that somehow across communities in general, we have some shared belief of each other's efficacy. Like yeah. where else do you find that? Of course, you know? I've never met a ceremonial magician that doesn't work with candles. Also true. I mean, and then Catholics have their own candle systematology, but the, the, the principle being the same that we, we can see other magical traditions uh, as um, iterations of the same ultimate ground um, and that- Which is as Heim Smith said, a groundless ground. Yes, yes, a plenum, a plenum, an open plenum. Or, uh, you know, it wouldn't hurt a few more magicians to check out Heidegger and the idea of the Dasein, you know, the, the being that is there, the being that becomes. Yeah. And also the Hermetic Deleuze is a really good book for people. I don't, I don't know how into Deleuze. I love Deleuze and Guattari. Yeah, that was a big part of grad school for me. Uh, yeah. Habermas, Paul Ricoeur for language, if you want philo philology and the philosophy of language. Paul Ricoeur is an amazing philosopher, a big favorite of mine. But um, yeah, and Lacan and Zizek, of course. Yeah, that he's a, he's a he's a challenging delight. Um, but Umberto Eco was my favorite. He's always oh, who I yeah. come back to because I think Eco got the proper balance of uh, structuralism and post-structural thought into a system that was functional, mainly through semiotics, but also, you know, cultural theory that doesn't go off the handles into uh, the whole polemics of Jordan Peterson land and all of the, the shenanigans of redefining postmodern to mean critical race theory. That's so, it's so anti-intellectual, it's disgusting. But yeah, we're I, anti-intellectual age, brother. I'm a little bit like a, like a Renzai Zen kind of guy in the sense that when people try and hammer me down to tell, get me to tell them what my truth is, I just wanna make a, a, a shouting noise or slap a stick, I'm, you know, that um, I, one of the, the, the nun who taught me Latin told me something very important that has always stuck with me. Mm, do share. Said, it doesn't matter how small the library is. You can walk in and you can touch the spine of every book, but you will never read them all. That you should treasure knowledge as a gift from God, but it will never supplant him. And that, that I that I should be joyful that I have the intellect to read, but never forget that it is not the thing. It's the finger pointing to the moon. And the so in the end, I just, you know, I want to ground, open ground, plenum, a shout, it all points to the same thing to me. Have you heard the saying that you can read all the books in the world and not understand the universe, but you can read one book in the right way and comprehend the whole cosmos. 
the Tao Te Ching is very this way. So think of it as, I think of it as terms in like every book is a microcosm of part of the macrocosm, but it's still that doorway, that window through which you can perceive the, the, the flaming yod above our heads and, and become in the bath as, as, as he says. Yeah. And uh, also there's the um, very interesting idea or a joke from Umberto Eco to share more of him. He has a book of essays called How to Travel with the Salmon and other essays. And you should read it, you'd love it, it's hilarious. One of his essays, they're very short, you know, one's like, you know, how not to walk a dog or one is how, how to use a cell phone, how to read a library. And he says, when people see his library, they always say, wow, look at all these books you have. Um, have you read them all? Which is what people always say, right? And he says, his favorite answer is to say, yes, twice. <laughs> because it's so absurd, right? Of course. Yeah. And uh, as an academic, any academic knows that the first thing you're taught in advanced uh, research methods is you read the last page of the book first. If you read my opus, The Ethics of Understanding God, first thing you should read is the last two pages. And then if you have a problem with anything I say in that last two pages, check out bits of the rest of the book or read the whole book or whatever. But mm -hmm. like in, as an academic, we read, the, we read the end, then we read the introduction, and then we dip into the index. So shout out to those who want to become a scholar without, I just saved you 150 grand. Yeah. Because unlike, unlike Joe Rogan says, education is not free in Canada. Everyone in the States, I hear talking that this talking point about how education should be free in the States like it is in Canada. What the fuck, guys? It is not free here. It costs a fortune. It bankrupts us for life. The government's done away with any forgiveness programs that we used to have. It's a nightmare. Please stop saying that like it's I think a selling point it's a talking point for for that you hear from Biden a bunch is you know let's have our or Sanders was the one Sanders, healthcare yeah. like let's have our healthcare like in Canada what you want to be you want to go into a hospital wait in emergency for 24 hours then talk to a doctor a social worker and a pastor and have none of them even give you an x-ray for back pain that's so excruciating that they know that something's wrong but yet all they'll give do is give you a bottle of morphine if you'll sign a waiver saying that they treated you that's healthcare in Canada you don't want Canadian health care. Now, it would be good if you did, could get a broken arm treated or get cancer treatment and have that free. We don't really pay for that. But right here, right next to me, I have a $5,000 bill from Medicare Canada, and I haven't been to the made use of our healthcare system in five years. I've had to go to Germany, in Berlin, and in Toulouse, in France, and in Asia to get medical treatment for autoimmune diseases that I've had surgeons tell me to my face, celiac disease does not exist. Like... They've said that to my face and then walked away in the hospital. So like, yeah, don't be like Canada guys. You, you guys have a much better thing going on in the States and I hope you guys can save your country from uh, black mirror land. Yeah, I think, um, I, what is it? Ad, my rant. Ad asterum per asperum. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the the journey of a of a country rhymes with the with the development of the human. I, I and is that from Robert Anton Wilson or or, or a... I think that was one of the mottos that was like a, a popular motto in Hermeticism. Through the stars, through di to the stars, through difficulty. Yeah, it didn't start with so it didn't start with Ra or uh, Jack Parsons. They just clinged onto it. Crowley probably used it from something else he read. I can't remember. Um, I don't remember that Asper Parasma. Yeah. It's but, probably a grimoire from like 
Rudd or one of those guys. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I yeah. The value of reading it can't be overestimated. I have a kink for footnotes, like yeah. a bibliography. You know, um, but I have a kink for footnotes too. That's the thing that I that I hope people can, especially people new to hermeticism and ceremonial magic, don't be so overwhelmed by the the complexity or richness of structure that you forget that which is boundless. That you you spend all your life trying to accumulate the knowledge that is the road when you are already there. Like it 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 pervades this realm. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the gradual learning is, is important. It is part of the drama play of the divine experience, but um, the Dewey Decimal System of Hermeticism will only get you so far. Yeah, I mean, and, and my take on that is, is get some training, go through a, an order or, or start a coven with your friends and put in a good 10 years and then maybe sell talismans and try and get rich off magic. I don't know, you know, but, uh, I think this, this made my, this made my 20, uh, 21st year. See, yeah. I mean, most of us have been at this a while before we even said boo to the public world. Um, and that's, that's how it is. Right. Like, you know, I, in 2015, I was evoked and uh, I, I basically slowly digested it and was in touch with my, uh, my higher and true self throughout that. And eventually my HGA showed up and we had a conversation and I only talked to my holy guardian angel, um, as, as I call it, um, when it's really necessary. And once I get a direction from it, here's another thing I've never talked about ever, um, like I go that direction and I don't even try to communicate in the meantime, usually, um, if I think I got off course, I might touch base, but it's not actually easy to communicate in a, in a way. And, but sometimes at certain points in my life, it's coming that that angels coming to me, whether I like it or not. And that's usually less pleasant, but it, it, it has happened. Um, I, I've certainly had those, those experiences. Um, one of, in terms of like, uh, navigating material life, the the self encounters i've had the most are um dreams in which i am visited by myself from the future who will give me information about what to prepare for oh cool the first one i had was right before, uh was in 2005 at the beginning of the year and the dream I came to in the passenger seat of an old Buick LeSabre and um, or in the back and on my right side was myself, but he was, he was older and he was worn out and he was, um, he was wizened in a way that I, I had not attained. And um, he said like, look, I don't have a lot of time. I'm just gonna tell you in six months from now, something's going to happen which is going to completely change your world uh everything you know is going to be gone you will be okay no one you are very close to will die but people around you will die so get prepared and be thankful for what you have end of dream and then it did not reveal itself to me until that night 
with my home completely gone and every belonging I'd ever had gone and dead people laying in the street in my neighborhood, looking at the stars, realizing I'm the other one now. And, wow. and so that happens on occasion in my life. Before I went to California to teach at this retreat center, I took a second and scryed into the future of it. And I pulled out so fast, I almost got whiplash. And I pretty much almost refused to believe it. Of course, I know better. So I, I let those two things live in tension in my head. But what I saw, because, you know, things seemed okay in the world at the time. And it was a beautiful place, I thought, to go teach weekly classes on all this stuff. Um, but what I saw was like destruction and darkness. I saw faces of angry people. I, and I could tell they were people that should love each other, fighting each other. And and then it, the vision came back and it was these people were also going to try and hurt me and kill me and take everything I had from me. And I was like, this is absurd. Of course, this is all happening in milliseconds. And then I saw it pulled back and I saw, but that's because the world is all filled of these black demons trying to eat each other alive and destroy each other. And the whole country is going to explode. And it's just mad. It was just like, it was like apocalyptic vision. And this was a vision I had in July, 2019. Fast forward to March 2020, it all happened. I couldn't even leave. Every time I left my room, I had to have my camera on record and mace in my hands towards the end there. No joke. And there was activated people on the property with BLM who just were looking for any chance to scream at you, even though they're big white dudes saying, you know, because you don't think Black Lives Matter enough. And you're like, dude, I'm totally support whatever's you know, goodness, goodness. And they're like, no, you don't, because you're not out there. It's like, you've been Ubering around San Francisco airport all day and you're spitting in my face right now, holding me against a wall. And they yeah. don't see it. And they think I'm the one who's not being careful or caring. But it's all Raja immutable fire. It's no, there's no harness. Yeah. Yeah. On one of the podcasts I did back then, you can hear someone just pound on my door in the middle of it, screaming and swearing at me. They're like, you know, don't smoke weed in the house. It's like, they were assaulting me when I went outside. So where the fuck do you think I'm going to do it, motherfuckers? Like if you beat someone every time they leave their, their house or their room, they smoke inside. Where they're going to hang out. Yeah. And I was barricaded in there. And the only reason they couldn't get rid of me is because the governor Newsom's aide and the assistant district attorney had my back. Like, you know, because there was nowhere to go. I couldn't cross the border into Canada. They were, Canada was only allowing people to fly in from China at that time. Yeah. Citizens can't return, but free, free daily flights from Wuhan. Yeah, the, the world's a mess. I think it will, but it will continue to sound like Kali Yuga for most of uh, our lives. If not most all of our it. lives, hey? Yeah, that's the thing uh, I think that hasn't hit most people yet, is that this is not a phase. No. It, and and we, we know this because we've paid attention to history now and then, and you know that there's lots of periods that last 100 years or 30 years or 40 years where it's nonstop. Like, what, you ever heard of the 30 years war? Did you ever hear of something called some little uh, strange spiritual movement that came along with it called Rosicrucianism as an attempt to act as a foil to this darkness? I mean, these periods lasted long times and, and there's no reason we can't be in one of them now. I mean, a transitional period, as my mom would say, between the age of Pisces and Aquarius is gonna be dramatic. And there's no getting around it. Like if you're going to, if 
people talk about entering into the fifth dimension or the new world and bringing on this like the true new age revolution and the, the world to come isn't going to be one that just happens through flowers and LSD like they thought in the 60s. And uh, we need to fortify ourselves for that. Yes, and, and not just spiritually, but also strategically about where we live and, and the way we conduct ourselves and all of those things. Not, not that we should be utterly paranoid, but um, different times have different modes of thriving. So you can thrive in, in Kali Yuga. It is possible. It just, it doesn't look the same. Well, yeah. I thought, what if I just start talking shit on the internet on a podcast? Maybe I thought that would give me some sense of distraction from the chaos around me and turned into a career. As an American in the South, it's all about land and privacy. Yeah, well, I, I do laud you guys for that. I mean, we don't have the same privacy or self-protection laws up in Canada, but we do have land just a little bit. So you can like, there's people who live up in them, like not in the mountains, but like beyond the mountains, like you just go off, you can just do that. I mean, I don't think you live that long there. It's pretty dangerous. I mean, bears, bears, bear attacks are a real thing. Um, just ask Dwight K. Schrute. <laughs> um, we have black bears, uh, but. Any bear will fuck you up, man. It's, it's a toss of the die when you, when you, I've been feet from bears. I've been feet from grizzlies and you're just like, the, what happens next isn't my decision. Yeah. Fortunately, I realized so once I realized it was a black bear and sound would help, but it looked like a brown bear because black bears look brown and brown bears look black. And one you have to make sound for to scare it away. The other version will attack you if you make sound. The other one you lie dead and it won't do anything. But if it's the other one, it'll come up and eat you if you're lying dead. So yeah, it's risky. But we do have land up here. You can just get a piece of land and, and fuck off. And in the States, you still have these protection laws where you can say it's my property, you can't come on it, though I know that's very tentative these days. And so I, I am, you know, there's places for us to, to live as humans. And I, I hope we all do find safe places. And even, what do you think about the idea of building some magical communities um, of people? Um, you would think as a, a therapist, which is supposed to be like the ultimate humanist profession, that I would have this unyielding faith in the human spirit and tenacity. Reality, at least in my experiences, anytime people get in numbers larger than eight, entropy takes hold. Yeah, and it's hard to keep spiritual, up. spiritual awakening is not an exemption from that. No, yeah, as I learned at the uh retreat center um yeah it's uh groups of people groups of people so yeah it's tricky we uh got to find a way to live and have lives of abundance but uh, it's doable i'm actually very optimistic about navigating the world more so now than perhaps i've ever been despite everything that's happening mm -hmm. yeah no I, I share that optimism and or as my some friends of mine say it's naivete but they're, they live in austin texas so yeah i feel like as someone who crafts magical objects for a living and lives in some place like the french quarter it it feels ignorant for me to be doom and gloom even though things are are troublesome that like gratitude will be so important anyway. And I think that's important magically. Uh, that's how I was raised to pray 
was that you don't pray for um, something that you have. You pray out of gratitude that that which you ask has already been granted to you. Yeah. You know, in seminary, the professors all said that one of the biggest problems with Christianity, and this is Christian priests and ministers of every ilk in church, you can imagine saying the same thing. The thing we've been fighting against for the last long while is is eradicating the the popular belief in petitionary prayer as the purpose of prayer. It's yeah. it's one of the worst forms of prayer you could ever practice. Petitionary prayer or petitionary atonement. They're they're the weakest forms of prayer. Um, oh, yeah. And stop, stop for forgiveness well. and do a better job. Mm-hmm. Like be kind to yourself. Move on. Like. Did you find when you did do those, those or that act of black magic in your past, in your uh, in your younger years, that you had to go through some sort of process to, because of that, like a healing or a forgiveness kind of process? I what um, it was more of a re- a revealing moment that showed me that I was in possession of tools that were left behind for use for purposes which were more valiant and less self-interested than the aim of my own pursuit of justice. And that um, as soon as I was able to realize that there is no justice for that, there's only moving forward, it, it, it was gone. I didn't feel like my life fell apart or anything like that. And um, all other cultures have very open attitudes toward hexing and cursing. And I, I don't disparage them. I just, I know that however you use your, your personal power and manipulate energy has a reverberation in every aspect of your life. And I'm just not about that business. Yeah, so. no, it's icky stuff and all those people sending demons at each other or attacking each other i think are silly silly kids but you know we're cursing the moon as as people were attempting to do damn you moon taking five days away from my girlfriend (laughs) i don't know know. (laughs) that's so silly cursing the moon Mm-hmm. I, I, I are what's your uh, if you grew up around astrology what's your what's your c- current orientation about like how astrological events create their reverberation in material life wow now you're whipping out the big guns aren't you oh i am very conflicted about astrology and always have been i'm actually quite uh challenged by the idea of planetary hours as much as i know how to use them and do um and my mother is a a sidereal astrologer sorry she's a tropical astrologer right um as opposed to jyotish and uh but i i couldn't discard astrology because i grew up with her and saw it work you know like i would come home from high school with a new student friend that she'd never met do up the chart and she'd get home from work and we'd be waiting there eager and she never met this person. She'd sit down and describe the person and the person's jaw would just fall open for an hour while she described the, my, my new friend to a T. And I did this dozens of times. And so there's something to it, though I do agree with Marsilio Ficino on astrology that 
you're not reading a map of who the person really is when you're looking at say the natal chart what you're okay. doing is you're using the, the the it as a means of divination to connect with god and learning those things from god that's what Ficino said now he had to say that sort of to avoid heresy charges and and stuff but i think that thing he said and actually meant and believed and that's what i believe all these things are tools cataphatic tools to move beyond into apophasis so from symbolism we move through symbolism into true known unknowing yeah no, the cloud unknowing from the unknowing huh the cloud of unknowing the cloud of unknowing which is really where transcendental meditation comes from you know is the repetition of a single word over and over until you achieve an ecstatic kundalini state my my perspective on it is is that um I've seen the confluence. I've, I've seen the the overlap and the the resonant truths appear related to ast astrology, um, but I rather enjoy that rhyming. Again, going back to rhyming, and quibble less about its mechanics. Just as death, it is a secret not yet for me. I, I like Alkindi, and you know, I'm not like a a super Platonist or anything like that, but um, I, you know, enjoying the mystery is okay. And as far as the creation of objects goes, I'm not just like making something; I am birthing something. It has it's an automata with a, with a, a, a sentience and an organization. And so, like any mother, you know, I'm gonna put baby Einstein to my belly. I'm gonna make it listen to Bach. You know, I'm going to give it the best chance it's got. Yeah. If using that rhyming helps, that's what I do. You know, like Yates said, because to him who ponders well, my rhymes more than their rhyming tell. Of things discovered in the deep where only treasures lay to sleep. There's another even more occult version of that that he wrote and published and then changed. But yeah, um, yeah, there's a couple of versions of some of these most magical poems like on one of them, the elemental creatures go about my table to and fro. Um, and uh, then there's, of course, the line that you see in the Golden Dawn initiations for for he who trembles at the flames and the, uh, that's actually the initiation, whatever. The point is, um, yes, these are doorways. These are doorways to realities. And uh, we shouldn't uh, worship the doorway too much, but the reality beyond it, the bath of light and the divine glory my favorite poet's uh ryokan oh who, i don't know them uh he was a zen monastic who lived alone in a, near a small village but isolated in a mountain and he he really communicates realization but he carries with himself the full range of human emotion and uh, like a longing for community and in um a boundless love of other people like writing this beautiful aesthetic poetry about the joy of playing ball with children from the village just like or it being really cold in his hut and crying you know and just a reminder that um the the person the person is absorbed is subsumed but also mysteriously aspects remain especially in that bodhisattva stance where you're continuing to serve others yeah that, um yeah it's not all circuitry and wires 
he's a good reminder that it's okay to live and feel. And I return to him a lot. Yeah, makes sense. I've got a beautiful copy I've had since birth of the Tibetan Book of the Dead here, and I delve into it sometimes at, at bedtime. I eschew mostly Eastern stuff these days, uh, obviously not tatwas and some things like that, but I had so much, uh, you know, when you're raised in that tradition, like that was oh, my okay. Catholicism. That was my Catholicism. I then I'm not reading Aquinas. I hear I, you. See, yeah, I did, but I then converted to Catholicism at 18 and went to seminary as a Roman Catholic seminarian before switching to the Episcopalian church or Anglican as we call it. So I'm very Anglo-Catholic, you could say, but none of that's really real to me. What's real to me is just my human soul and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love Wicca and Druidry and Celtic magic and shamanism and all that stuff. I mean, had big First Nations influences in my life being in Canada, of course, like I have a lot of friends with vibrant First Nations spirituality. I've done lots of sweat lodges that are, you know, all night under the moon, diving into the ocean, screaming your head off going back in smoking the tobacco and knick knick with the shamanic drumming like all that stuff fuses together into the matrix of my soul and that's where i come back to saying can't we just be humanitarian you know and you know maybe put all this other shit to bed and move on but we were warned in university 20 years ago that the the problems of this age of the future and they all my professors were right they all said it would be anti-intellectualism and look what where we are now like Ah, it's, like, it's it's just my but i do love eastern stuff like i love siddhartha by herman hess is still one of my favorite books and even though that's a westernization of that stuff i the eastern stuff is great but uh you have only so much lifespan right so you have to choose what you want and i'm i'm delving into the west and will for the rest of my life do you want to see what i i got the other day at that bookstore absolutely treat yourself this thing's huge Oh, that's, and is it, is it, oh, it's filled with illustrations as well. This is by my, my dear friend uh, and fellow academic who I met almost, uh, tw- or who I met 25, 24 years ago and had lunch with him and a bunch of other academics at the Association for the Study of Esotericism's first annual general meeting at the University of East Lansing, Michigan, blah, blah, blah. Academics make everything so long-winded, Jesus Christ, but it's so amazing. And it's finally, I get to finally delve in. I've wanted this for years. And it's, it's the Kircher book with Jocelyn Godwin, who's the expert if anyone wants to study sounds and music when it comes to esotericism, his, his holy seven vowels. So I'm going to do a whole, whole YouTube video on this, but isn't that gorgeous? Oh, it's going in the cart. I, my husband's an oil painter and p- would probably like that as a reference as well. I mean, I'm sure you can get it online reasonably. In Canada, it costs $10 million, of course, but that's just our, our economy right now. Um, if, if you're about uh, vowels and vocalization and like the, the nature of the logos in relationship to magic, uh, the Icons of Power, Ritual Practices in Late Antiquity by Genowitz is also a very good one. It's part of this, the series Magic in History. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I flew through that yesterday. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation. Um, and the other book you recommended, Materia Magica, I looked at that and wow, what amazing scholarship. There's so much. It's, it's, it's at one side tragic that my $100,000 plus dollar library has been stolen by uh, douchebags. But um, at the other side, I get to rebuild. Or as, 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 the, as the wisest man alive today said, build back better. 
<laughs> well, I had to do that after Katrina. I lost everything. Lost. Well, I had pretty much had everything from gems from the Equinox to Celtic mythology. I really had a collection, and I lost all of it. And so I'm still rebuilding in a way. But I like a library, man. I splurged. Splendor Solace. Okay. I've needed this. I was in Berlin last year studying the in the archives the manuscript or the 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 and and because uh, I heard that if you looked at one of the actual facsimiles that you could see and read a lot of text around the edges and seeing the printed version, I can say that's true. So I have copious notes in German of all this German writing that actually is around the sides of the actual manuscript. Uh, whether you see it in in professional archival facsimile or the original, whatever. But that's what I did. I spent days in Berlin in the library there because I have a book coming out on Splendor Solace as it pertains to a band's song lyrics from Canada. Not not quite as occult as people are expecting, but hey, you know, I, I'm going to have to pay the rent. So uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Everything, but yeah, isn't that a beautiful book? And it's another one by okay. Jocelyn Godwin uh, with Stephen Skinner, uh, the Splendor Solace definitive book, bookie wookie. Of course, what I'm going to have in my little book will be certain insights based on actually, you know, I speak German. So like reading the, all these crazy things around the sides of the manuscripts and you can see the body, you're like, what? And I was like, how can I get one of those facsimiles? But I think you can't for less than five, 10 grand for, because mm -hmm. you know, it's for, it's for university archives or archive archives. I thought it was the actual manuscript until I was there. And I was like, where's the manuscript that you advertise it being here in, in the, in, in Berlin and they're like, well, well, you know, that's the website. And I'm like, ah, verdammt dich nochmal. But you know, it, it's good enough. That's all you need is good enough. It, um, if, if people want to get books that appreciate in value, get the good reprintings of grimoires that are, are archival and nice because their prices are going crazy. They are. Yeah. Which is why I'm very choked about losing my old library, which is now worth a fucking fortune. Oh. All the money I made my entire life, and I made a small fortune in 96 to 99 selling my Magic the Gathering collections. Like I made close to 100 grand as a teenager, and that's how I was able to sort of emancipate and then go do my own thing. And uh, all I did was buy books I knew would be rare, so that what I've lost is, is a fortune. Um, but I'll regain and I'll rebuild another fortune. I just uh, also got the uh, limited 200 copy leather bound. Uh, Skinner book on techniques of Solomonic magic because he had a flash. He's having a flash sale today. Only ninety three pounds, only ninety three pounds for one of the limited. That's going to be worth thousands in like uh, very soon. I will. I will be buying it. Go to Golden Horde and get his. Yeah, it's one of the two hundred leather hand leather bound copies of his techniques of. Yeah, and that's like forty pounds sterling off. So that's like a million dollars Canadian, and that's a good savings. <laughs> So we are about to be barged in on by my husband. So oh, wonderful. Do I get to say hi or is this a sign that we should say? <laughs> Yo, dude, this weird Canadian occultist wants to say no. This is such a delight. And we did a solid two and a half hours, baby. Oh, wow. That flew by. Awesome. Right? And and let's speak again sometime. Warm. But, yeah, whether whether or not you you publish a, a future conversation up to you, I really sincerely enjoyed your company. Oh, well, wonderful. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you my cell number. We can be friends. I, I am with a lot of the people I've talked to. And how else are we going to have friends in this day and age? I'm, I'm literally not, we're not legally allowed to even meet up with friends on the street right now. That might have changed, but I don't think so. Montreal, Quebec just 
went under actual martial law. Did you know that? Montreal, Quebec is now under actual martial law, police rule, official. So that's coming to probably most of Canada. Like we're fucked. I'll have to read Le Devoir, the, the, the newspaper in Montreal and see what's up. How's your French? Uh, mm -hmm. Your French is good? Yes, my, my French is good, but I, I speak French in, in like a weird, bizarre Canadian dialect sounding thing. I had university French from a Canadian background. And, yeah, so and, in Cape Breton Island, I lived, I stayed in a, I, on tour with my band, we were staying in an Acadian town called Shedekamp, and there was all these people speaking Acadien French, and we were like, whoa, even the ones in my band who were fluent in French couldn't understand a word, and yeah. That was when I found out that Acadians got shipped off to New Louisiana and became the Cajun, a Cajun. And that's you. You're basically Canadian, motherfucker. Uh, I wish I could get dual citizenship just to have options, but no. no I'll get you up here. I'll marry both of you and we'll thruple it and, and we'll build a commune. And it'll be the first commune to never have human problems ever because this we're- This is how you survive Kali Yuga. <laughs> All right. Shalom. Uh, Much love. Much love. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk